0: Reading the biblical accounts of God's mighty acts of salvation, we can sometimes feel that it must have been so easy for the biblical characters to trust God in every and any situation. And sometimes, of course, this was true, but even in some of the grandest moments of salvation, the people of God didn't find it as easy as we sometimes assume. Welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly message from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and I hope that you hear the invitation of the Holy Spirit as you listen to this message. As a community of faith, this is what we're passionate about, people hearing and responding to the invitation of God to join in His mission to renew everything in Jesus. This week we explore one of the most iconic and dramatic scenes of salvation in all of Scripture the rescue of Israel on the shores of the Red Sea. The clear focus of the narrator is on the activity of God which dominates the narrative, but there are some indicators along the way that suggest that Israel might require a deeper rescue too.
1: The Bible reading tonight is from Exodus, it's chapter 15, 1-11. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver, he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger. It consumed them like stubble. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood up like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy boasted, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword and my hand will destroy them, but you blew with your breath like the sea and covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders.
0: Thanks, Esther, uh, for, for that, and good evening, welcome. It's good to have you here tonight. Uh, we are wrapping up this uh, first section in the uh, book of Exodus. And as Brett said, we'll be taking a bit of a break for the next little while uh, in a different series before we kind of pick up the rest of the book uh, in, uh, in, uh, at the end of July. So looking forward to kind of going through the rest of it. But we get now kind of to the kind of climactic uh, little stage at the end here. Uh, and if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to be turning you to a couple of different pages. So if you want to bring up Exodus 13, 14, and 15, uh, that would be. Uh, pretty helpful uh, in the next couple of minutes. I assume you're all familiar with the term clickbait. Right, uh, those, those really appealing headlines and really intriguing photos down the sides of web pages or at the bottom. Things like 20 photos never be seen before, number 12 will blow your mind. Uh, you know, uh, follow this one trick to live forever or whatever it might be and, uh, and, and everyone's clicked on them. It's not just me, right, everyone's clicked on them once and kind of gone, nah, I'm never doing that again because they're never quite as good as they let on, right? Which is the whole point. Uh, but there is a, a subgenre of uh, clickbait, another type of, of clickbait that I find much more appealing and often actually a little bit closer to form. Uh, and that's uh, YouTube clips that talk about details in movies that you may have missed. Uh, particularly like uh, science fiction movies or fantasy movies. You know, I'll go and see the movie and then I'll go onto YouTube and I'll watch a couple of these, you know, 10 details that all but the most hardcore fans missed. Uh, and uh, you watch them and sometimes they're like, you're like, oh, no big deal really there, I didn't notice that. But Nobody cares. But occasionally, you're like, oh, that's really interesting. That is an interesting detail that tells me more about you know, the, the, the universe in which this story takes place or about the characters or about the sequel or whatever it might be. Uh, and, uh, and that image actually came to mind as I was reading this text this week. I thought, I need to come up with a snappy clickbaity title, you know, five details you missed in the Exodus story. Number three will knock you out. Um, and, and I thought, that's probably not quite what I'm after when it comes right down to it, particularly because clickbait is never as good as it sounds. Um, but, but I, as I was reading this passage I was struck both by the um by, by I guess the major story in it like the main thrust of the story and then out of that my eye was really caught by a couple of really intriguing details. So the, so the story itself of course is perhaps one of the most iconic stories in the entire Old Testament. Uh, even if you haven't read the book of Exodus, you're probably familiar with this scene. The people of Israel have have gotten out of Egypt uh, they've marched to the Red Sea. Pharaoh has had one more change of heart. He's thought to himself, I can't believe I've let them go. He's chased them down with his army, pinned them against the Red Sea. They've cried out to God and God has parted the waters of the Red Sea and his people have walked through on dry ground. Uh, And then as soon as they're all through, the Egyptians chase them in uh, and, and the waters flow back over and completely wipe out the Egyptian army and the people of Israel sing a song of praise. And it's a great way to finished the first section of the book of Exodus, right? There's this song of praise that kind of summarizes all that we've covered in the first 14 chapters and that looks ahead to all that we will be covering uh, in the following chapters. So it's this really kind of climactic moment and, and my eye was really caught by the focus that the narrator has on the action of God, Again, I don't know whether it's because when I've seen this um, played out in movies, the, the focus is always on Moses or on the people of Egypt, uh, sorry, the people of Israel, and they're crying out to the Lord, and Moses is doing his staff-waving thing, and there's the, the, the water being pushed back, and Pharaoh's chasing them, and there's the, all the emphasis on the people, but the story as the narrator tells it is all about God. From go to woe, this is a story about what the Lord does. So he is the one who leads the people out of Egypt. He's the one who decides on where they're going to travel and the road they're going to take. He's the one who suggests that they loop back around so that Pharaoh thinks they're lost and will chase them down. He's the one who strengthens Pharaoh's resolve to chase them down one more time. It's the Lord's presence with them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that goes before them and then confuses the enemy. It's the Lord who fights for his people. It's the Lord who opens the sea. It's the Lord who collapses the sea. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. All the way through the people of Israel are almost passively invisible in the story. This is all about what God does to save. And you can't miss it when you read it through. It is so obvious that this is the mighty act of God's salvation. This is what he has done for his people. And so with that great big story in mind, and I'd kind of being struck again by the focus, the, the dominant role that God plays, there were a couple of details that really then caught my eye. Because while the focus is is on the activity of God, and we'd be wrong to kind of ignore that, the details that were told about the people of Israel really stand out because they are so starkly contrasted with what God does. And so I want to draw your attention to a few places where we're told what's going on for the Israelites, Because I think there's two really significant invitations for us in this text, and we need to kind of get our heads around uh, these three details. Number three will shock you or not. If you have your Bibles, have a look at chapter 13. The first of of these details is in verse 17 and 18, the very beginning of this climactic story. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. And, And the detail that caught my eye was the, going out ready for battle peace. Because I found that a little bit strange. They were bit brick makers. Who armed them? Uh, and in chapter one, Pharaoh's Part of Pharaoh's rationale for oppressing the people of Israel was the fear that if anyone attacked Egypt, the Israelites would side with the attackers against the Egyptians. And you can't imagine then that they would have armed their slaves or allowed them to carry weapons around with them so that when they left, they could actually march out fully armed. But more significantly, when I had a a deeper look in it, is actually... If they went out ready for battle, it makes God's commentary really interesting. Did you hear? This is, this is God's deliberation. You ever wonder how God thinks? Here's one of the ways he thinks. He leads them out and he says to himself, we suppose, if they face war, they might change their mind and return to Egypt. Now, just think about that for a moment, The people of Israel have just seen the mighty acts of God displayed time and time and time and time again, and God says to himself, if they face any opposition or any hardship, they might change their minds and go back. Isn't that interesting? And so there's this kind of this hesitancy that the Lord has about his people, this question that he has about whether their hearts are really fully committed to him. While Pharaoh's heart is resolute to always go against the Lord, here the people of Israel also seem to be not particularly resolute and firm in their willingness to trust the Lord. And we have this insight right off the bat. God himself thinks, hmm, if there's any hardship, this is going to end badly. Then in chapter 14, they've marched out. Pharaoh's decided that he was foolish to let them go. He's marched out after them. And in verse 8... It says, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. Uh, and, uh, and again, I was kind of drawn to this, this d- description of the Israelites marching out boldly, particularly because God's concerned that they'll wuss out at the first sign of opposition and hardship. But also then when I was doing some reading, the, the, the literal translation would be that they were marching out with a high hand. The high hand, it's this sense of defiance, right? There's this kind of sense that they were marching out going, see, Pharaoh, we showed you, right? This, this kind of deal. And uh, Alexander, who's one of the commentators that I've been reading in preparation for this, he, he makes the point that this same uh, sense of defiance is also used, the same word is used in Numbers chapter 15, verse 30. And in that context, it describes sins that are high-handed. They are defiant, intentional, arrogant sins, a decision by a person to defy the Lord. And for those kind of high-handed sins, there is no sacrifice. They are to be cut off from their people. And and he he says, you know, there's nothing in this text in in Exodus that suggests that the people were being defiant towards the Lord. He said, but there, there may be in the narrator's mind just this suggestion that the people of Israel are marching out under slightly false pretenses. The sense that, see, Pharaoh, we did it rather than God doing it. Their hearts are not yet, it seems, fully on board. Then skip down to verses 10 and 11. This is the one that will shock you, or it should shock you. Here it is. As Pharaoh approached, so they're pinned against the Red Sea, the armies have come, and the Israelites looked up. There were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, now listen to this. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done by bringing us out of Egypt? Here's the kicker. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Wow, you can see why God was a little bit concerned that if there was any opposition, they might change their minds. Because as soon as there's any opposition, they change their mind. But it's not just that they say to Moses, we should just go back. It was that language of didn't we say to you, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. We don't wanna go to the promised land. We don't care about the promises of some dead bloke named Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. Who cares? Whatever the promises, whatever the purpose is, just leave us alone. Isn't that bizarre? And see, these details, we kind of skip over them, because what happens next, of course, is Moses stands up and says, don't worry, stand still, God will fight for you. And the pillar of a cloud kind of goes around behind them and, and, and keeps the two armies apart, and then there's the whole Red Sea thing that takes place. And then, when the people see that the army of the Egyptians has been destroyed, they respond, we're told, by fearing the Lord, and they put their trust in him and in Moses and sing this remarkable song of praise, right? Quite like. Miriam, uh, Moses' older sister who had already been uh, at work in uh, saving Moses from the water and is now present as God saves the people from the water, leads and writes this song that the people then sing together. It's this glorious moment of trust and praise and worship. We think, oh, it's all good. But there are these three little details that suggest that underneath the surface, things are not good. Because at the first sign of trouble they've come back to Moses saying, what were you thinking bringing us out of Egypt? And it's this kind of stark kind of contrast, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you have, of course, the grand story of the narrative, right? Just think what the Israelites would have seen. I mean, they could not have missed it. Every single newspaper in Egypt would have been running the story, who is the Lord? Strange plague strike Egypt, Right? They would have been asking again and again, what's taking place? Where are our gods? Why can't our gods do anything? Who is this Moses bloke and why is he so powerful? They couldn't have missed the fact that the Nile turned to blood. It's a really long river. The whole thing is polluted. They couldn't have missed it. There was three days of darkness everywhere except where they were. Just a few days before this, they had celebrated the Passover meal. They dabbed blood on their doorposts and then in the middle of the night had been driven out by the Egyptians who were all mourning the loss of their own firstborns. And as the Israelites were being forced out with their firstborn children, sons and daughters, and all the firstborn of their livestock, surely they would have recognized what had happened. Surely they would have recognized what God had done. Surely they would have recognized it. And if that wasn't enough, there's a pillar of fire that is leading you by night, and a pillar of cloud by day, it is the very presence of God, a physical representation of God in their midst. And at the first sign of trouble they say, I wish you'd left us alone. I'm reminded of Danielle Strickland uh, in her uh, book, The Ultimate Exodus, in a, in, a, in a conversation that she relates that she had with someone else who pointed out that it is God who calls the Israelites slaves. The people of Israel don't seem to have seen it that way. They were comfortable in Egypt. This is not the last time we'll hear them talk about how good they had it in Egypt. And so there's this really remarkable dichotomy here, isn't there? There's this extraordinary example, again, of the power of God to save, and to save with almost no consideration of the people who are being saved. God doesn't save the people of Israel because they are amazingly righteous or so full of faith or deserving of it or even, as we hear, even because they wanted to be saved. He saves them because of his promise. He saves them because of his purpose. And there's an incredibly important point for us to reflect on there because it's the same for us. We've been saved, not because we're particularly righteous or particularly trustworthy or particularly deserving, but because of God's promise to restore and renew the world, of his purpose to restore the world, beginning with and including our lives. That's the basis of our salvation. And yet, in the midst of it, we hear that it's not always easy to place your faith in God. I think that's what we hear in this, don't we? I mean, there are moments, aren't there? There are moments when it's easy to trust in God, right? When the the metaphorical waters have parted and we've been miraculously saved and we cannot deny the hand of God and we've seen the destruction of our enemies and the complete disappearance of all that was in our way and all of the problems, when God smashes into our lives, we kind of go, wow, and we trust in the Lord, don't we? We fear the Lord, we trust him, we say this is easy. Most of the time, most of the time, placing your faith in God is actually really difficult. It's really, really difficult. The people of Israel, here and, and elsewhere, long for the pleasures of the past they longed for what was comfortable and, and what was familiar and what appeared to be safe. It may not have been the best scenario, but you know what, uh, the, 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 the known is better than the unknown. And I'd much rather take the, the mixed blessing of the past than the promise of the future. And what the people of Israel demonstrate time and time and time again, not just here, but all the way through Exodus, and in fact, all the way through the entire Old Testament, is that they ultimately needed two Exodus moments. The first is here, right? The physical Exodus. Uh, they, They needed to be removed from the physical, social, economic oppression of Pharaoh. And from this point on, they are set free. They are set free. We don't hear about Pharaoh again. We don't have any indicator that Egypt had anything to do with Israel until we get into the time of Solomon and his reign. All the way through Exodus, Egypt are done. Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, no reference. Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel. It's not until we get into kings that Egypt actually shows back up on the radar. The people are free physically. But what do these little indicators point to? The fact that they have not left Egypt in their heart. And all the way through Scripture, all the way through Scripture, We find that ultimately, one of the great challenges of faith is ultimately a heart issue. How do we respond to the grand promises and purposes of God? How do we respond? Because most of the time, it's actually really difficult. It's not easy to place our trust in the promises and purposes of God. It's not always entirely evident where God's at work. It's not always absolutely perfectly clear uh, when, when God is speaking to us or leading us or guiding us. We have to see circumstances and situations through the eyes of faith. And it is often remarkably difficult to leave our old life behind because it is known and it's comfortable. And truth be told, it was kind of fun from time to time. And it felt like it was kind of free. And what we need to hear in our salvation is that God has rescued us from what is not good for us and has invited us into a life that is. The Israelites here seem to have thought that Egypt wasn't that bad. But God's perspective is that they were enslaved, oppressed, with no chance to be free. Whose whose perspective will we trust? Our perspective? Which says, eh, it's not that bad. Everyone's doing it. We're pretty comfortable. It's pretty familiar. It seems pretty safe. It can't be that bad. Or do we believe God's perspective, which is that any life apart from me will ultimately cripple your ability and capacity to live a full life. Do you see why faith is so difficult? Do you see why so often in our journey as followers of Jesus, there are moments when our faith feels real strong, and there are moments when it feels like we hardly have any faith to scrape up This is the story of the people of God all the way back in Exodus. And so there are two invitations, two invitations. The first, to reflect on what God has done in rescuing us. We sing about it all the time. We think about it all the time. It's in our prayers, right? We believe that Jesus, in his life, death, and resurrection, has rescued us, that he has saved us, not because we were worthy or deserving or particularly useful to him, but just because of his promise and his purpose. That bears reflecting, because that is the big story of Exodus. God saves and he saves in dramatic fashion, and he saves because of a promise, and he saves for a purpose, and that's worth reflecting on. But the second invitation for us to reflect upon out of this story in particular is how are we going to respond to that salvation? Are we gonna respond with wholehearted trust? Are we going to respond with faith? Are we going to respond with a loving desire to uh, live in relationship with this saving God? In other words, to reflect on our first exodus when Jesus has brought us out from the power of sin and death and to ask this question, do you and I need an exodus of the heart that's ultimately this question that we'll deal with in the rest of the book of Exodus it's the pressing question of the story of the Old Testament the exodus of the heart because while we can leave Egypt physically it seems it's harder to leave it from here so I want to pray for us I want to pray for us that God would remind us of all that he has done, but also that he would remind us and call us forward into the the sometimes difficult life of faith. Uh, We're going to be singing that song, Raise a Hallelujah, again. I don't know if anyone knew it before tonight. Uh, Hopefully you'll be able to pick it up. I think I'll have a crack at it this time around. Uh, and, uh, and, And it's a song that, of course, reminds us of God's victory, doesn't it? But as we sing it this second time, I know you might be concentrating on getting the tune right and all that sort of stuff, but as we sing it this second time, can I also just point out to you that it implies the second question. It implies the second question. It it reminds us of what God has done and it begs the question, so how are you gonna respond to that? How are we gonna respond? And it's a song that invites us into a response of faith. And you might be going through a time right now where your faith is easy You've had kind of one of those moments, one of those weeks, one of those patches of time where you just kind of feel like, yep, God's really present in my life, he's really evident, it's, it's all pretty clear right now, I find following pretty easy, or you might be asking yourself, kind of like the Israelites did, jeepers, why, why didn't you just leave me alone? Why didn't you just leave me where I was? I was fine. Maybe there's been some opposition and hardship in your life. Maybe you're asking some of those tough questions. That is okay. Because faith is not always easy, but it's also a, uh, its also something that we can do, right? We can take a step towards faith. We can raise a hallelujah. We can sing a little louder. I think sometimes this is starting to feel like a second sermon, so I apologize. But I think sometimes, sometimes you know, when we're not feeling great in our faith, we start singing a song like "Raise a Hallelujah," and we think to ourselves, "I can't sing this." I, like I such a fraud. I I'm not sure I believe this stuff right now. This is just so hard for me right now. I actually have reckoned for a long time that when we feel that way, we ought to sing louder. Because ultimately, you're here, not because you're perfect, but because of what you believe. And these are the things that we believe. So if you're feeling like a bit of a fraud tonight, sing up. <laughs> so that your heart can hear again, this is the decision I've made. I will sing a little louder. I will raise a hallelujah, because I I do wanna believe to the best of my ability that God is good and at work and has a promise and purpose for my life. So let me pray as the team come up and lead us in a couple songs to close. Uh, And our prayer team will be down the front as well. You know the drill. I would love to pray with you about whatever's going on in your life, but will you join me as we pray? Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for your mighty act of salvation in rescuing us. I uh, Thank you for um, the way in which you have saved us apart from how good we are or how deserving we might be or how trustworthy we might prove, uh, but you've saved us because of your promise and purpose to restore the world, including our lives. Just remarkable. And I pray for each one of us that through your Holy Spirit you might strengthen our faith some of us here tonight may, might be feeling great, feeling like it's easy to trust you, right? But also know that for many of us, or well for all of us, we go through patches, sometimes short and sometimes long, where it just seems a little bit harder. And I pray that as we sing these last couple of songs of, of praise and worship, that the, that the words we sing might become our prayer, uh, that, that, that they may become a bit of a cry of our heart. Um, as that man said, who approached the Lord Jesus uh, and and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal my son. And Jesus says, what do you mean willing? Uh, Don't you have any faith? And the man replied, I I do have faith, but help my unbelief. Uh, For many of us, uh, perhaps that's where we sit tonight. And I pray that these songs might help our unbelief and strengthen our faith in you. I pray that we might continue to think about what our response is to your great act of salvation. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. The life of faith is not always easy, and we are often in need of a second exodus of the heart, just like the Israelites. I hope that you will, to the best of your ability, trust in the promises of God this week, placing your faith in His perspectives and His purpose. We'd love to hear from you as you hear and respond to the invitation of God. You can find us on Facebook or visit our website at gamiabaptist.org.au. And just a reminder that this series will be broadcast on ACC TV later this year. You can follow New Horizons TV on Mondays at 10 p.m. or Thursdays at 8.30 a.m. and watch previous sermons on our website. May your eyes and ears be open and your heart soft to the invitation of the Spirit to join in God's renewing work in Jesus. God bless.